Welcome back on Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have a new friend to the show, Lisa Willis. Lisa is a passionate artistic administrator with 20 years of extensive experience managing multidisciplinary projects in the nonprofit and commercial arts sectors. She joined Cave Canham in September of 2020 as development manager and has held various consulting and management roles in development, programming, and operations like the Kimmel Center for the Performing Arts. In 2020, she co-founded The Lynn List, a curated listserv and grant writing support service for individual artists and small nonprofit arts groups. It's a great episode to listen. We talk about poetry. We talk about Cave Canham and what they do for poets and artists. It's a very important time as we're trying to reclaim our stories. Also, welcome back Noye Brown West, my young star. She is a New York-based Nigerian-American comedian and writer. She has been featured in the Boston Globe's Rise column as a comic to watch, and we agree, as well as she's been heard, seen, NPR, PBS, ABC, Sway in the Morning, and the New York Comedy Festival. Noye made her acting debut in The Sympathy Card. See where she's performing. She opened for me a few weeks ago and she destroyed it. This week, see me headline as part of the Jersey City Comedy Festival at the Art House Productions. That's June 10th, 8 p.m. Go to my website, marinafranklin.com and get your tickets. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. Now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, tank tops. They're all available. Just go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, my wacky friend, Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave us those reviews. And we have surprise guest friends from the podcast stop by. And sometimes we offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it helps you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Wear a mask still if you want to. Be nice. And Black Lives Matter. One, two, three. And welcome to Friends Like Us. I'm Marina Franklin here with you. This is Lisa Willis and Noye Brown West. Hello. <laughs> welcome. We are so excited to have you today. 
Noye is my young star who's on the show. I'm always excited to have you, Noye. Oh, you thank know you. That. Yeah, I'm always I excited don't want, here. I don't want you to feel like I don't appreciate you. I, I adore you. <laughs> yeah. um, young comedian who just opened for me last week, actually, yes. as I was doing an hour, did an amazing job at the Comedy Cellar. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. For bringing it. It was a sold out show. It was amazing. And she hopped on that train right away to get home safely. <laughs> I left so fast. You and Dave texting me like, where'd you go? I was like, I'm already on that train. I don't blame you. And we're both in New York City. New York. Noye is in Brooklyn. Yes. Flatbush. I'm in Harlem. And you are, where are you residing? So I'm in Harlem as well. Um, so uptown. <laughs> What? Yes. Lisa, say <laughs> word. I know for some reason I thought you were in Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia oh. for a while, uh, past life, but no, I'm in uh, Harlem. Uh, our office is in Brooklyn, but so split time between the two. But I'm uptown, uptown girl. Don't give your exact address, but what street? So <laughs> Riverside. <laughs> Riverside. I love Riverside. Riverside. Yeah, yeah, Sugar Hill, Sugar Hill specifically. Oh, Sugar Hill. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I love Sugar Hill. Love it. So nice. It, it, hopefully we can hopefully keep we it can... green, right? Because they keep trying. I know. <laughs> you know, um, living in Harlem has been like, so I have seen the changes since 1997. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. It's I've been starting, here for a while. It's yeah. becoming like Upper West Side a little bit. It's definitely pushing up even to where I am. Uh, I know. We've got to maintain some of Harlem. Yeah. Being <laughs> not just green, but also black. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Cause a lot of us have left. Yeah. Now I love um what you do. I just wanna, you know, I could read it, but can you tell our our listeners what you do? Because secret thing about me, and something that really touched me as I was reading everything about you, is I was I started off as a young child writing poetry. From the ages of like, uh, well, I was like eight until like high school and beyond. I was, I have loads and loads and loads of poems. And my grandfather used to take me on and he used to say um, to my mother, Maria, do you understand what she's doing here? She's, she's writing these beautiful poems. These are amazing. And some of the poems are still in my mom's, my old house in Chicago, in the basement of the home. Someone found them. And he was like, this is like incredible. And that's how I always wanted my poems to be found, by yeah. the way. I, ne I never, I was never like, um, how do I put it? I, I was like, I was against like public, you know, like uh, books on poetry. It was more of my expression. And if someone found it and they, something moved them, that was... The unknown artist is who I wanted to be. Oh, wow. That's the best way. <laughs> but anyway, <Yeah. laughs> enough about me. I'm on the show every week. Lisa, tell oh, us man. about yourself and what you do. Well, first, just thank you so much for having me here and spending this time. So excited to sit and talk with you all this afternoon. But um, so I'm executive director at Cave Canem. It's an incredible organization. Uh, it was founded by artists specifically for Black writers, founded by Toy Derricotte and Cornelius Eady 27 years ago um, to just address the underrepresentation 
um, and isolation that uh, African-American poets were facing in the field. And so it started off as just a very small gathering of poets um, coming together at a, a monastery in upstate New York, just reading some poems, workshopping over the course of the week, safe space and community. And lo and behold, fast forward you know, almost three decades, we now have 500 plus fellows that have kind of gone through that annual experience. Um, that residency has now turned into something that uh, lasts for one week each year. We select 54 poets, all different ages, all over the world, all different styles. Um, very, very, very diverse uh, group of people that come together. And then we also have public programs that we do throughout the year. And we have several publications. The Kaveh Kanem Prize is uh, one of the you know, kind of most important literary prizes that a poet of color can receive in, the, in this country. So that's one of our prizes. And we have two other book prizes as well. So just a really beautiful space to be in. This retreat, I have to ask you, because I did see one is in Vermont, and which everyone knows is one of my favorite places in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. How, how, how does someone like myself? Because <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know about this. I want to go. So how does an average person go? Like, how do they... Fly. So I'm really glad that you asked. So we have, so the actual Cave Conum retreat is actually in uh, Greensburg, just about an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Once you are selected to participate in the Cave Conum retreat, you then have other opportunities available to you. So that's probably the retreat that you saw, that the one that's in Vermont, that's one that you can see. But the one that is for Black poets, you know, happening every June, we generally open up the application in late summer and there's, you know, kind of a small number of spots. I think this year we had almost 500 applications for what Ooh. was roughly 12 to 13 spots. So it, it definitely has, has the demand um, has definitely increased um, over these past couple of years. But um, we select poets, they come, you stay for a whole week, you get to study with five um, faculty members and you rotate throughout the week and you have a reading each night and um, you have up to five years to come to that retreat three times. Once you do the retreat three times, then you become what's known as a Kaveh Kanem Fellow. Now, oh, I love this. Now, 500 <laughs> applicants, 12 selected. That's very competitive. So what are the sort of things you're looking for? Like for someone who's like, you know, like, do you have to have credits? Do you like... Does your poem has to be published? So not necessarily that you have to be published. I mean, it's definitely looking for um, poets that are demonstrating a certain amount of prowess in the field. But just we are very cognizant of the kind of limited number of spaces that are available. And that's why we have kept also this a community workshop going um, up until last year. Twice a year here in New York City, we would offer a community workshop, which is um, a smaller version of the retreat. It's coming once a week for 10 to 12 weeks um, here in our office and being able to workshop your material and less competitive. There's 15 spaces. Um, we offer it twice a year with different themes. And then this year, we just um, expanded that to two other cities. So we're trying to make sure we offer it kind of in different spots around the United States because we, we know it 
everyone can't come to New York. Everyone can't always get into the retreat that we have in Greensburg. So we just finished up in Montgomery and Minneapolis. Um, both of those workshops ended last uh, in the last two weeks. And this fall, we're going to California. Next spring, we're going to be in Texas. So really trying to move around as much as, as possible so that the community can have access to our programs. Wow, I love it. And then, you know, I, I can see like if someone is involved in the community, if they actually put in the work, yeah. then that helps in the selection. Because right. then you you know someone's like, they're really about that life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Noye, did you ever write poetry or I have did. you ever gone on a writer's retreat? I So I've been wanting to go on a writer's retreat, one of the comedian ones that happen all the time. But they're always in places that it's hard for me to get to. So um, or I have like plans. I can't do them. But I used to write poetry. I, I actually have been published in uh, my my college's poetry magazine at UMass. Uh, but there there was a typo in my poem that like wasn't caught by anybody. So now I'm published. I've been published twice. The first time, no typo. Second time, there is a typo. Very embarrassing. <laughs> so that's just there forever now. <laughs> So I love poetry, though. And so how did you, you're a poet, I imagine, right? So you're, you're not a poet. Yeah. No, oh. she's a, she's a, this is what I actually, you're leading to my next question, because I would wanted to, because I see your resume here, manager, managerial logistics for Lang Lang, Tan Dun, am I saying Tan Dun, mm -hmm. Savion Glover? Yes. Ooh. <laughs> That's the one that's like, I was like the American Ballet Theater. So you were in charge of touring and managing the tour or the logistics. That's a lot of work. That, yeah. These are high skill. <laughs> so what made you, are you still doing that and this? Or? Oh, no, no. This is, this is, this is a life. This is a full on uh, endeavor here at Cave Canem. I mean, as we, as, as I'm sure many people know, um, black led organizations are often, you know, quite under resourced and definitely black leadership, which, you know, includes, you know, women of color. We were often doing, you know, kind of 10 times with one time the thing to keep it all going. So this is a full time endeavor. But my, my original kind of background was working uh, in artist management. And I definitely come from the arts entertainment, kind of more commercial sector. And um, was in that for a really long time. That's, as you said, a very intense life. A lot of the artists I work with um, at the time, you know, they toured all the time, long, long. He tours 365 days a year, which means you're not off at all. Uh, they're just you know, moving country to country and all the things. And so I'm really grateful for that time period because I learned a lot about, you know, negotiation, budgeting, working with different types of people, cross disciplines. You know, you could be working on a film soundtrack. You could be going to the Grammys. You could be going to an orchestra concert. You're moving all these people. You, it's just a lot of skills that have been very helpful, interestingly enough, in, in this world. But did that for a long time and then kind of fell into the nonprofit uh, world a little bit by accident, um, moving from management to then working as a presenter and working directly with artists. And then in working with artists, uh, started learning kind of like fundraising and some of the, the details that go into someone 
coming up with an idea before they are represented and it's, you know, on the stage and everybody's downloading and all of that. There's just so many steps uh, to artistry that are often hidden. Uh, I think, you know, our society, we, we, we take in the content, but there's a whole breadth of content that's kind of ignored or dismissed or kind of living in a different radar um, and not spotlit. So I, I really got to, you know, be embedded there. And um, then the pandemic happened, the health pandemic happened yes. and it, you know, it really, it grounded the industry. There were no performances. We were all very concerned about, you know, our restaurants being closed and all these other things, but the arts was, was really kind of a, not really on everyone's mind unless it was Broadway. So for me, uh, with everything that was going on, it just was a really interesting time to sort of step out of that and go back to my community and bring all of the skills I had to to my own. And I just, um, that's how I ended up at Kaveh Kanem. I just, it's not a performance. So people are still reading, <laughs> still reading and doing all the things and coming back um, to a Black organization and just being able to have some healing in that process as well of moving from dominant culture to to here so trying to condense 20 you know 20 a 20 year journey into a short answer but yeah wow. it, but it sounds like it's just more meaningful it is. where you've landed mm -hmm. it really is you know because i like i like noye knows i just finished doing a very busy fundraiser for the first time yes. ever sold it out you know, though sold it yeah. out and it was my like <laughs> You know, it finds you. Sometimes yeah. you don't, you're not, you don't need, but I didn't, I've never done a fundraiser. Um, and I fully produced this one at the Harlem Comedy Club in, uh, Comedy in Harlem, it's called. Um, and it's a, you, since you live in Harlem, you know, the schools in the area, this one is on, um, on Manhattan, right past Frederick Douglass. It's a D3 school, tier one very severely defunded then they defunded the mayor defunded the schools so you know we decided to raise money for these teachers these and the parents to have a night out of comedy but more importantly to bring money back into the schools because these schools don't have parents who can throw money at it but that was the first time that like you were saying like it just drew me in i didn't really know what i was doing uh figured it out and now, so I'm I'm wondering, like, from where you were to where you are now, what are some lessons that you would, like, recommend to someone? Because, like, I keep saying this on the show. It's we had the Black Women in Comedy Festival on. It's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to execute it. Mm -hmm. So if someone is listening to you right now on your journey, going from very high end, you know, scheduling, touring to doing something this meaningful, what what would you say some of the steps you took or, or you could recommend to someone who's listening? Well, I, you know, I really think overall the theme is that it's, it's really a blessing to be able to do something that you love doing and to be in an environment where you're appreciated. So for me, I think one of the biggest steps is when you're in that space of, you're not initially just working to live, but you're also looking to get some sort of meaning out of, out of it, you know, looking for environments that have uh, values that resonate with, with your in your own internal um, workings like that makes transitioning over much easier. Um, 
I, but I think one of the biggest lessons that I have learned is that not all of the tools that you take from every environment that you've gained experience in are going to be appropriate for wherever you are. So just being really adaptable and really what I've been saying, I've been kind of like on a listening tour for two years in my time here, um, just really listening and um, being cognizant of all the dynamics that are at play before you start to react or start to solve or start to fit yourself in, because then that really allows you to kind of take in the experience and then start to see, oh, okay, I can actually pull these couple of things in and they will serve me well here. Um, because this, this really is a very different, um, it's, 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 it's like night, night and day, uh, in mm-hmm. a very good way. Um, but yeah, just, and also just really valuing all aspects of your lived experience. I think we live in a culture that, you know, is very quick to value certain uh, characteristics or skill sets or, oh, you've got these degrees and just these very formalized things. And it, it often doesn't give you the vocabulary to value other skills. It's actually also a skill to know how to work with people, to be a good listener, to, you know, and, and, and things that don't necessarily have a fiscal um, attachment to it. And so I think if you're, the sooner you're able to value your complete self, on the page and not, I think it will make any transition much easier because you, 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 you know that that has worth and how that can translate to the space you're in. Absolutely. 100%. I learned so much from this past week. Thank <laughs> you for saying that. Cause I was like, Hmm. <laughs> you know, like, like you, you, you have good intentions. Right. You, you, you want your heart is in it. And then there's challenges. And so you learn mm-hmm. in this day and age of such a pushback on black literature, on on black art, black poetry. What are the challenges right now as a, as your program is is definitely making steps forward? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as you know, we're kind of heading into Juneteenth with this um, push to really want Black communities to think seriously about the efforts that are happening to censor our literature and our writers. Um, these things wouldn't be happening and haven't happened um, if, you know, that sort of white supremacist ideology identity still wasn't with us. And we know America has to still atone for its original sins. And, and until that happens, we're really, you know, not going to make as much progress as we want. But I think the biggest challenge, of course, is, you know, obviously the book banning and this idea of this resource hoarding. There was a brief moment, I think, of enlightenment um, that happened during the health pandemic where people kind of suddenly thought, oh, I need to now, you know, let me go find someone black. Let me go buy what they have. Let me go do all the things. And, you know, that energy really didn't last beyond August. Um, I think we, for example, got a bump of, you know, people supporting us and really being engaged and all those things. And, you know, uh, of the 100% of, of, of that energy, only 1% of that has has been sustained. Um, both. Wow. And so I'm and I'm saying that as an organ representing an organization that is a leader in the field that has been around for almost three decades has has some capacity. So imagine what that has been like for for others in our community. But I think you know the other the other largest challenge has been to to really just have to be really steadfast in articulating that 
it's not black magic. People use that phrase a lot, black magic, black magic. And it's like, I really have been trying to undo that. It's not magic. Our community has been under-resourced in some cases for centuries, for decades. And we do the same with, with less. And it's not magic. That is coming at the expense of both human toil, other, other things that can make for a really, um, you know, unhealthy environment. And unfortunately, we, I think as a society, have kind of normalized this, this unfairness and resource distribution. And so, um, the challenge has been that there's been, an, there was an, a, a bit of a tension and a sense of urgency to, to correct that. But then that kind of went away. It went away in a major mm -hmm. way. And it's sort of like, oh, we're fine now. We're all, you know, business as usual. And it's like, no, actually, actually no. Um, if you're interested in making structural change, we, we do need that energy to continue. And here's a list of things that, that need to happen. So I, I really think my, the biggest challenge has been to just constantly articulate that and to really have the confidence when in certain spaces to advocate on behalf of, of our organization, on behalf of what we're, what we're doing. I mean, when we think about kind of this limitation and censorship that's happening, um, in terms of, you know, book bans and the, the, the curriculum in school and all of that, that actually is not a, a new, a new thing. It may feel like that to certain people, but, but it's not, I mean, black people are the only people that were legally prohibited from having access to the written word in this country. And there's been a longstanding tradition of limiting access to the written word and our history. And so it's really not a surprise that this is all happening happening uh, now in such a profound way. And that's why it's so important to have the awareness that there are people out here, organizations out there that are really directly responsible for not only us having access to the written word and having, you know, our, our stories told and supporting the artists that are putting this information out, but we're actually countering what's there. So if you don't, if you don't support us, it just makes our work that much harder in the midst of the tide that's already kind of against us. So all of those things are a challenge and more, but um, again, we're very steadfast in our purpose and just keep moving forward. Yeah. Gotta do. Yep. Yeah. Let's <laughs> like, like, keep on yeah. moving. That's yep. all we can do. <laughs> it's uh it's really interesting because you are so right. Like Noye and I talked about this all the time, like during the pandemic. Like I was doing the podcast virtually like this all the time. And then I would get so many people who wanted to come on and wanted to really change things and move things. I have my white friends were calling me like, is this true? Does this really yes. happen to you? And um, I just kept looking at the phone, you know, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I noticed in 2022, their conversations were starting to change. The parents of, you know, the, the my friends who had children, my white friends who had children, their conversations started to become, well, I'm really concerned that my child is feeling guilty. Like mm -hmm. my child didn't have these feelings before. My child really doesn't even think about color. And I, I don't know if I want them to feel that. And these are friends of mine who are doing the right things. They have like fundraisers where they donate 
money. Their children were challenging them about their ignorance. Mm -hmm. And that's what they really didn't like. And I just, I found it very interesting. I was like, is it that you're afraid of your children feeling this way? Or are you projecting that onto your children, what you're feeling? Mm -hmm. Because from what I've seen, this younger generation gets it very easily, does not seem to be bothered. There may be one or two kids you know, that feel like they have to go home to their parents and say something, but that's one or two kids. And then you have like, so now we have a school system that is being controlled by those one or two kids who go home to their parents and say something. And now we see what's happening in Florida. So I guess I'm saying all that to say is like, how do you get funding? Like, how do you, when you have this um, sort of like, we call it humanity checked out sort of feeling people are broke. People are like, I've donated enough. How do you, how do you, how you get money? (laughs) How much of it, how much of it is uh, government funding for the nonprofit also Um, adding on to that? Because I was curious. So, I mean, government funding is actually pretty limited in this country in general for, for the arts. Um, You know, the NEA is, extremely important. Um, New York City is unique in that we do have the largest cultural funding budget in the, in the country. I think uh, California, wow. uh, LA might somewhere, one of the cities in LA, I think LA or San Francisco might be second, but New York City has the largest. But So we are in a little bit of a unique scenario there and they are a very robust funder, but um, government funding in general is a very small part of our budget. I mean, I would say less than 10 10 percent of of the budget um and i sorry i just wanted to kind of go back to what you're saying about the next generation because i'm i'm a mom of a i i i generation kid and i do think it's interesting that the young the kids the, the tweens and under i think the reason why they are so different so woke so all the things that everybody's afraid of is because they're the first generation that has had this amount of access to information and i think we're starting to see now that they're becoming vocal and okay they're not a toddler anymore now they're becoming teenagers they can like get out in the streets with the side like they're getting to a place where they can actually cause some damage and i think that's why we're also starting to see the like okay we got to take the books off the shut we got to you know limit all these things because they can because they're voting they can just go on their phone they can see they can see the videos directly they have access to the real story in a way that no other generation has had before so um but yeah, so most of our funding is with um, foundations. I mean, Kaveh Kanem is almost three decades um, strong, but it was only until two years ago that we were able to actually hire a actual fundraising uh, team internally. So just in terms of, again, like perspective and resourcing, how you know different that is from other organizations where they have staff in place and all the things. And for us, you know, we're still very much so in, in the beginning stages of getting all that mm-hmm. we need, um, but have made a lot of momentum um, in, in writing that scale. Um, we really are focused on individual donors at this time and really are all about like all boats rise with the tide. 
Um, so Cave Canem, in the height of the health pandemic, um, came together with four other Black literary organizations. Um, we come together as Getting Word and run a fundraiser from Juneteenth to July 4th, so between what we consider our two Independence Days. Um, and so that, that fundraiser is really important to, to us, Kaveh Kanem, and the group as a whole, because we really see it as if there's anyone that's talking during Juneteenth, it really needs to be Black voices need to be heard. Um, Juneteenth, you know, is our first, it's, it's our, it's our Independence Day. It's that first marker of Black people having access legally to the, the written word. So it's very significant in terms of like us contributing to the literary canons at large in general. Um, so we really also want to have that fundraising um, period together because it's a chance to hopefully, you know, get new, new people interested in supporting us. Um, we know our community supports us, but if you go out and you buy a book, um, you like to read, you like to read, you like to read all the things, um, you know, there's, I would hope that that would also encourage you to have an interest in supporting the organizations that made it possible for someone to be able to have the time and the, all the things they need to be able to write the book and all the things that you're reading and taking in. So, um, these collective fundraisers are really important. It gives us a chance to share amongst our community um, as well, because also during the pandemic, there was a lot of funding that was kind of just going to certain organizations or certain stores, and it really wasn't getting um, kind of evenly distributed because people maybe didn't really know who 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 to go to and we're seeing a lot of lists of like here's the 20 you know makeup brands by black people there was a lot of curated lists yes but um the reality is there's a lot of organizations um that have been around a long time that have been doing this work beyond 2020 2021 um who you know didn't get support and so i felt it was really important to make it possible for people to donate and donate to one kind of entity and for us to be able to divide, divide that equally amongst a couple of the organizations that, you know, have really collectively 130 years strong doing this work. Um, and that would be, you know, one way that we can chip away at those budget needs. Yes. Yeah, so if you're listening right now, and I mean, if you listen to friends like us, and and you're listening to this and you're like, how can I help? You you know, we always talk about solutions. Here it is. So we're going to be promoting you. Please donate. What is the website again? So it's uh, gettingword.org. Uh, and you can go to the site. You can learn about all of the organizations, Cave Canem, and then we have Furious Flower, Hurston Wright Foundation, Obsidian Lit. Um, and the watering hole. Um, so five black organizations were all female led. So it's a way to support black leadership, which is really important, black female leadership. Um, and we uh, represent thousands of, of artists in all different forms um, working in the literary style. So gettingword.org. Awesome. You know, it's so interesting to me with the poetry because I like I grew up in Chicago. So Gwendolyn Brooks was like drilled into my head, but not until I like really looked at this episode that we're recording now, did I really look into her work? It's kind of strange what draws us to poetry. What draws you? Originally, I mean, now 
exposed to so many poets as a result of this space that I'm in. But Nikki Giovanni was kind of one of the first poets that I was really reading um, a lot uh, from. And of course, Maya Angelou. And I just felt like when you read a poem or hear someone doing a reading, it's kind of similar to music where it can speak to your experience. You feel like someone's telling your story and it's just, there's just something very strong about having someone put in words, how you feel, especially if you may not know the word, we can't always articulate our experience. So to hear someone do that can really feel validating uh, can really take away that sense of isolation that can sometimes happen. Um, and so that's what drew me in. And I love to read. I love reading. And so I think poetry is really accessible in, in, in that way, especially if you're someone who um, can't commit to a 500 tome, you know, <laughs> book or whatnot, yeah. you can move through it really quickly. And yeah, I, I love poetry. And I love Gwendolyn Brooks as well. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she's like my uncle worked with her. My uncle Charles worked with her. And then um, I think we had when we did the fundraiser. I, of course, I'm going to forget the artists. There's so many poets. So many. <laughs> but I was it was just like I was standing on stage. I had the quote. I couldn't find it. And then amazingly, this young woman comes up from the audience and has the poem tattooed on her arm because oh it just fit the whole education theme um it was something about if we don't look i'm gonna be the worst at it's about like something about like if we don't speak up you die in silence of the ones who've oppressed you or <laughs> i mean it's basically that you know but it was just i think it's in suzaki shange mm. i want to say but i'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'll I'll get it. I'll get it at some point. I know I'm the worst. This is why I'm a comic. Okay. Don't don't get mad at me. <laughs> let's see. Let's see if I could find it. Um. Let's see. It's like was it Lucille yes. Clifton? Because that's Zora Neale oh, Zora Neale Hurston. If you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. And that's why we, what I said, that's what this fundraiser is for. And it was amazing that I couldn't find it. And this young lady had it tattooed on her arm. I was like, well, some of the words are in cursive here, but <laughs> but it was just amazing. Like for me, like poetry has always been that place where as a child, for me, growing up, having education kind of interrupted like I grew up in a, in Highland Park, Illinois, then moved to the south side of Chicago, which was very different economically. You know, we lost money, didn't have great school that I was going to. So the education was sort of disrupted. My my I still sort of insecure about where to put commas. Right. And periods. Poetry was a way for me to express myself without having the box of grammar that was enforced on me in schools. And so I could still get the words out and I could still communicate without the punctuation. Um, and that gave me that freedom. And that's why I just, I love what you're doing because I, 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 I do feel like um, art is so, when the systemic white racism of it gets to, it just gets so boxed in 
you know? So it's so important what you're doing. Um, there's, who are some of your favorite poets that you like to read? Now you mentioned, or, or I'm going to ask, you mentioned too. Noye, who do you like to? Oh, I mean, I'll listen to any poetry. I did like Maya Angelou a lot. I like, you know, just the classic writers. There's a weird poem that's one of my favorite poems of all time, but it's a very weird one. Uh, the Jabberwocky. <laughs> I used, I had, that's the first poem I ever memorized. And I, I recited it for class, uh, I think in like sixth grade when we were doing our poetry unit for extra credit. One of those extra credit nerds. <laughs> but it's um it's a gibberish poem which kind of like goes to your oh i also i really liked urban welsh because he was like he kind of wrote like very gibberish he wrote train spotting but he was also he also does like poetry yeah um but i just like the idea that poetry you can express something with just making up your own words uh using what uh, whichever um format you want i mean there are rules to it obviously but i don't know i just there's the mathematics to it too i always loved like logic puzzles so anything that you had to logically put together and figure out what they meant by it um you know uh links and cues obviously i feel like i like all the ones that like everybody's supposed to like right <laughs> and then <laughs> but then like you know throw in some random ones like urban welsh but yeah I'm really excited about um, Amanda Gorman. I like the attention she's been getting as well. Yeah, yeah, and I'm glad you brought her up because we have this article about the Florida school limits access to Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem and other books after a parent's complaint. So Amanda Gorman, the nation, nation's first national youth poet, spoke out after access to the poem she recited at President Joe Biden's inauguration was limited at a Florida school. Miami-Dade County Public School moved the hill we climbed to the middle school section of the library after a parent filed a formal complaint with the poem. The district made a statement that no ban on literature had taken place while Gorman posted statements about the rise of book bans on social media. So, what do you have to say about this? <sighs> you know, <Lisa. laughs> it's like ellipses. You know, I just, that inability for people to be able, especially for young people to be able to interact with the inaugural poem, which is a moment celebrating our democracy. It's just very profound in this case, especially, especially with Amanda being kind of the first, you know, youth poet laureate. And then, um, and what I understood to be a, a moment that is bringing the country to, together um, for that to be the poem that we're now saying, you know, the kids can't, they can't engage with, they can't think critically about, they can't even read it because it will cause some sort of harm. So just very disturbing. I mean, um, and I think also just, you know, it, it does make me think back to just, again, the founders of Cave Canem and, why it was so important for them to to create this space and just that kind of history of society not wanting to validate our word or to include it in the highest levels of 
you know, formality and institutionality. And so in this case, in a school environment that, you know, we can, you know, have them singing the Star Spangled Banner, pledging allegiance or whatnot, all of these things that are important markers of history that have a very complex origin story, those things can stay, but yet this cannot. So that's why, you know, I think it's really important that we're having this conversation and that we really, we really do um, create that opening for discourse to continue because we just remove the access completely. It's like, well, then that removes us being able to even have the conversations generations down, down the line. And they, and they claim that they haven't banned it. They just moved it to moved it, but we know what that means. Right. That means you did uh, you did make that parent feel valid mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and validated. And I think the parent said they weren't they weren't into banning. They just wanted more Colombian or I think we should expose every parent who says they don't want something in the school, just like we did with Karen's. <laughs> we need to give those parents a name. No, yeah. Can well, you come up with one. Well, I was just I was just thinking about how there was an article last week that said it's like the same ten people who have been complaining all over the country to get books. Banned. <laughs> it's the same ten people. No, literally, it's not. It's not like this big coalition of of right wing Republicans like everybody thinks. It's like been the same ten people in every single state in every single school district. They just been organizing because. Once they get, there's like a certain number of complaints that a school has to get before they act or a library has to get before they act. These people know exactly how much or how many complaints they need to make. And so they just organize, go district by district complaining about things, which is a very pathetic life to live. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I know. But that's all it takes in this country, which. Are we, are they banning any white material? I think it's it, they're banning white material if it's um, Jewish, or if it's um, gay. Yeah, right? Jewish Don't say and gay. gay. Yeah, Jewish and or gay. gender, you know, based. Yeah, queer in any way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you you can get banned too if you're white if you fit those demographics as well. It says here it was determined at the school that the hill we climb is better suited for middle school students, and it was shelved in the middle school section of the media center. The book remains available, however, in the media center. So, I mean, how do we document, or I think you are working on showing proof that these books and poems have value. Can you talk to that? Yes, yes. So Kavi Khanum um, has commissioned a study, a field study, um, where we are going to be documenting just the existence of Black literary organizations and the artist and material that has come out of out of those organizations. And I think it's really important for us to step into this area of documentation because, um, at least on this side of, of the street, from what I've seen. Um, there really have not been any, there's very little studies in the academic world on these sorts of topics and specifically in, you know, anything related to the black literary world. And so for us, this is a really important moment because it's the first time that we're going to be able to contribute to, to the canon in that way, which will allow future people, researchers, academics, writers to be able to react to 
the information that we find. And it was also really important to me that we were listed as a co-author on the studies so that for the history books, it would show that this is a, a study that is commissioned by a Black organization about the history of Black organizations. And one of the outcomes of it will be a sustainability piece. Um, so we're hoping to come out with some sustainability tools that other organizations can use who are interested in or are already doing this work about how they can, you know, continue to survive and thrive. Cave Canem is kind of unique in the sense that there are actually a lot of organizations that um, have modeled themselves after our us. Um, so we have a lot of what we call sibling or organizations, INAPO, which um, represents Native uh, poets, uh, Kundiman, um, and so, so many other organizations outside of the Black space have looked to Kaveh Kanem for an example of how to organize in their own affinity groups. And so this study is also going to be really important to them as well. And um, something I think is kind of a point of interest that I have found really fascinating. Uh, so I feel like the Harlem Renaissance is definitely uh, a point of creative history that the masses in general are somewhat familiar with. A lot of times when we talk about poetry, people are able to, oh, Langston Hughes, et cetera, et cetera. And so people know it as a result of the work and the books that came out. But the Harlem Renaissance was not an organization. There was no office. There's no, to our knowledge, there's not a record of how it came to be or how people came to be in these salons and this kind of network. And so we really see uh, Kabe Kanem as an artistic movement, but we really see it as being really important to not lose that history of organization um, so that, yes, there's the creative output, but for us to put in the record that it didn't just come out of the air. It came because these people got together and they got at this person's house and they had a retreat and they made it possible for that person to go to France and to really document the full history. And so that's what we're doing with our study. Um, and actually, the name of the study uh, comes from the last line of a Gwendolyn Brooks poem, her poem, Paul Robeson. Um, the last line of the, well, the last two lines of the poem are, we are each other's magnitude and bond. And so the name of the study is magnitude and bond. Oh, yeah. wonderful. So yeah. Oh my God. So I, you know, I applaud everything you're doing. It's so important right now with everything that's going on. Um, and and you have such like a wonderful disposition, by the way. Like since you've joined us on the episode, like, right? Yeah. Like I'm looking at her and I'm like, she's just so kind. Like who could ever be like, who could ever say no to you? <laughs> right? I mean, my God, she's wonderful. Thank you. Is there a crisis with Black poetry being seen? Yes, I think def definitely so. I mean, poetry in general, out of kind of all of the artistic fields, is is the most under-resourced. I, I come from the performance world, as you know, and so I've definitely kind of moved, moved through those spaces to kind of see, oh, if you go to a Broadway show, like everybody's there, there's, you know, that you, there's a lot of energy um, to promote the engagement with, with that art form and same to some degree in the orchestra world and kind of move on down. I, dance is the kind of most recent world that I was in. And I, I really thought that was the space where, wow, like this is really like where, you know, 
everything kind of trickles down and they're kind of living on the drips here. But now being here in the poetry space, I, you know, this is on another, another level. So literary space in general is, is really quite under research. So then if you add kind of the concentric nature of disparity and you add to it being a black poet or in all the other intersectionalities you may have in your lived existence, there's definitely a lack of resourcing. And so Kavikanam is really, as we kind of go into our next chapter, really trying to amplify, amplify that and really trying to be an advocate, both in literal things like poets need to be paid when they do a reading. It's not just, you know, free labor and they need to receive, you know, X, Y, Z, but also just um, investing in all the other ways that support, you know, can be needed, um, you know, just promotion support, um, you know, making sure people have a bio, just treating them with the same level of regard and enamor and respect as we do all other art forms. Um, so um, I do think, though, that in terms of like reading poetry, I mean, we definitely are seeing uh, reading of poetry continuing to climb. Um, I think they said it's one of the fastest uh, genres of, of literature that's being being read and getting new audiences and black poets are definitely at the the edge you know edge of that so um I, you know it's it's that kind of disconnect of like everyone's out there but are they are they really getting all that they are truly do still you know still evening that out yeah. <laughs> i think you know it's funny because i think of deaf poetry jam mm -hmm. Remember, uh, it was a deaf. Po yeah. I mean, as a young poet myself, I was it wasn't my form of poetry, but I was just so happy that that was making poetry very popular and like cool in a sense. Um, and I feel like I, I don't know what happened to that. Like, it, still it was there. It still exists. Where? I was friends with a lot of uh, poetry jam people in Boston. It's still a thing. Uh, one of my friends is actually a comic, uh, Chloe. She was part of it. Her, all the troops are pretty much uh, black or POC, but Chloe is just like a white girl from France. But she, <laughs> she was in their troop too. And they still, they do, they still travel around and do competitions. That's still mm -hmm. a thing. Yep. Yeah. It didn't oh, disappear. Wow. It's just no. not mainstream as much anymore. That's the thing. That, yeah. That's what I'm saying though. It needs to be mainstream. It needs to be back to... It's, I mean, especially after this with Amanda Gorman, it needs to be, hmm, another idea. That's another yeah, idea, yeah. bring it back, because it still exists, people are still doing but it. But we had, I, I do wonder um, about, like, Russell, who is it, who is it, was it Stan Lathan who produced that? I think so, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. because he did all the deaf jam. The comedy, yeah. Yeah, deaf yeah. comedy jam. This is what I'm curious, right? I'm wondering if he donated to these organizations. Who's profiting and who's giving back to the community when they're profiting off of this, when they're making it more popular? Because we know hip-hop culture definitely is poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, it's just, you know, so you, you bridged the gap there. Yeah. A lot Look of the the poets in Boston were also rappers mm -hmm. or they were also musicians or I mean, the one that I just told you about was also a comedian. So there's always like a lot of crossover in the arts, but most of them I would say were rappers. Mm -hmm. That was like their secondary thing. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Oompa. That's one who has gotten like pretty big out there. Who? Oompa. 
she's a she's a rapper out in boston her name is oompa but she was um, oh i think i remember hearing of yeah oompa she's good does she do comedy no but she did the poetry jams that's actually how i heard of her originally so she had a troupe that she was traveling around with oh okay i would like to read some of the confessionals from your page (laughs) from the canum page cave canum page from the missing page, be intentional about making creative spaces that counter the societal impulse to tokenize, homogenize the full range of black experiences and black experience, identities, and creative outputs, and to make space for black poets to be who they are and do what they do. Yes. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because we are so tokenized. It's like, you know, there is no rules. I see, I always go, there's no rules to poetry. I know there are like, you know, you rhyme, but there really isn't, you know, that's the beauty of it is that it's, it's that individual's expression that sort of touches all of us in some way can like touch you, you know, you're, you know, poetry in motion on the mm-hmm. subway yes every now and then i'll sit there and i'll see a a poem on the subway and you just go yeah have you seen i'm feeling that right now toys toys uh, our co-founder nap is on the subway right now oh oh what what is her what is it uh her poem nap if you if you look at uh, the poems that it's are, about a nap yeah it's <laughs> Uh, yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've seen yeah, that one. So that's, yeah, that's our co-founder. Um, oh, that's cool. That's really, yeah. So I've definitely seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I have seen that one. I was like, yeah. I do. A, I used to do a joke about how dating young guys, they don't take naps. <laughs> they don't understand the beauty of a nap. And I think I had, when I saw that poem, I was like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the naps are so important. So, <laughs> so we have this governor, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> who is feuding with the College Board over AP African-American studies. And in the run-up to a likely run for president, he picked a fight with one of the nation's most powerful educational institutions, the College Board, over course material in an AP African-American studies class. The dispute became a national lightning rod for discussions on race, censorship, and what is or is not essential American history. Florida Department of Education officials um, January 12th letter rejected aspects of the AP African-American studies curriculum saying it violates state law and was significantly lacking in educational values. Um, through the letter did not, though the letter did not say which state law the course violated. And in 2022, DeSantis signed the Stop Woke Act a statute that restricts how schools and workplaces can facilitate conversations around sexuality, race, national origin, and gender. Now, I have a person who said this to me. I'm going to ask both of you this. They asked me this question, which one is worse, Trump or DeSantis? Now, my answer, just to give you some guide, was that's not the point. Mm -hmm. They're both bad. They're both bad. They're the um, two sides of the same coin, honestly. Mm-hmm. Same white supremacist coin. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think there's a difference? Do you think one is worse? My 
immediate reaction when you said that was DeSantis just because he has been very successful in getting legislation through that's codifying his thought process. And I think his, I always think that people who are able to articulate their thoughts are, 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 are like more dangerous than the person who's, who's not able to. And I do think of the two, he is able to somehow legitimize what he's saying and carry it into law without fanfare. And I do think he's more dangerous than Trump. Trump has a lot of kind of side activity that's happening that people are starting that he's, he's a distraction. Um, and I think DeSantis has less distractions, which means he can make more headway in a smaller amount of time. But I agree. They're both, both of the same coin, different sides, both equally dangerous. I really don't think DeSantis is doing anything new in the South. I just think a, a lot of people didn't realize that it's like that in a lot of other states in the South. So he's just doing, he's just pushing the same legislation that already exists in places like Mississippi, Alabama, like even Texas now is, you know, ahead of him and something because they were able to like completely ban um, drag shows. But I don't know. He's just doing the same stuff that's already been going on in the South for over a decade, decades, we should say. So I don't think he's worse than Trump. I just think he's very Southern. And now he's making Florida very Southern. And a lot of people didn't think of Florida as that Southern, I, is what I'm, I don't know. That's my takeaway. <laughs> Yeah. The NAACP is t is now putting it as a place for black individuals to be careful mm -hmm. of going to. Wow. Yeah. That's not the first time though. Anytime there's a shooting any place um of a on unarmed black person, they also do that for that place as well. So it's not the first time that they've done this for a state. Mm -hmm. Um my little brother, he has an office in Tampa and my sister texted to warn him about this and me and my other sister were pointed out to her that this isn't the first time that NWACP has done this, even in the last like three years. Anytime there's something going on, they'll put out a warning like this. Well, what do you think? You know, every, every time I watch The View, I see Sunny always telling, um, I forget her name, the, uh, the one who lives in Florida. She always tells her to move. She's like, you need to, why do you live there? And, she's, and she always comes back. She goes, I have to live here so I can vote. Mm -hmm. would you live in a place like florida like where you know desantis is i have friends who live in florida i know and i'm always like what's going on like you live there do something but i know he's messing with the yeah the votes mm -hmm. you know would you live in a place like florida to just maintain and fight could you do it i could <laughs> personally i get the point of of standing your ground, mm -hmm. but uh, so I um I have roots in Alabama. Um, I have family there. I was born there, and I wanted to move back there to work for the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, in Montgomery, but I just couldn't do it. I was like, then I'd have to live in Alabama. I just don't <laughs> want to go back, even though I do have family there. My uncle lives there. Um, my aunt lives there. Um, R.I.P. to my cousin who just got shot there. Um, oh my God. Yeah. It's just, I mean, I'm it's sorry. a, it's a place that I understand that it's, you can have a happy life there, but 
I'm just such a political person that I don't think I could personally have a happy life there and just ignore all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Even if I was doing the work I wanted to do, which would be working for the SPLC, but I don't know. Yeah. No, I couldn't. I, no, I couldn't. I, I did live in Philadelphia for roughly nine years and commuted back and forth between there and New York. And I purposely kept my residence main residence in Philadelphia so that I could vote, you know, PA, but, but no. And I just think even just in saying no, I'm very cognizant of, of what that means to our community and the, and what that means for the people who are in spaces where they're really, it's, it's, well, we're not safe anywhere, but where they're in spaces where they're being tested in a, you know, kind of in a more um, intense way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just say, you know, hey, if you're there in Florida and you're listening to this, fight the good fight. Good luck. <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> I care. But it's just like, oh, my God. Uh, some of the books that they banned, Concerns Found Within College Board Submitted AP African American Studies Course, Kimberly Crenshaw was one, known as the founder of Intersectionality, co-editor of Critical Race Theory. Angela Davis, mm -hmm. self-avowed communist and Marxist. This is what they're saying. Black queer studies. Roderick Ferguson, who exclaims we have to encourage and develop practice. This is this is what th they're putting out to their constituents. This is not for us. This is what they're doing. The fear mongering. Um, we have to encourage and develop practices whereby queerness isn't a surrender to the status quo of race, class, gender and sexuality. It means building Forms of queerness that reject the given realities of the government and the market. So they bring out these quotes to scare people. Movements for Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so Leslie K. Jones, who wrote Everyday Black People, produce an unquantifiable amount of content for the same social media corporations that reproduce the white supremacist superstructures that oppress us. So they're like, see... Bell Hooks, Robin D.G. Kelly. I always feel like once they start banning stuff, we just want it even more. Yeah. Like right. putting these lists out there is actually good for making people, especially young people, want to get their hands on it. Because mm -hmm. that's always like I, I forget what it was uh, that Brooke Shields was in when we were when I was a kid. Oh, the Blue Lagoon. Oh, right. Yeah. And you had to have you had to get it. The Judy Bloom books, mm -hmm. everyone, mm -hmm. you had to get it. The advanced Judy Bloom books, you wanted to get, I forget her, what the one that was like, not just about, you know, blubber. Right. But there was, oh, yeah. The one that's about uh, Ramona, right? It's like she gets her period or something. Oh, yeah. Did yeah, you, yeah. God, did you hear me? They just made it into a movie. Oh, yeah. Me, Margaret. Yeah. Margaret. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there was another one that she had that was even more advanced that they were, everyone was like, oh, my God, rolling their eyes. And we were like, well, we got to get it. <laughs> They have the line like, I must increase my bust. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, listen, so, they yeah. they stayed banning books, though. That's not new in this country either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is there anything in the program to to that you're going for where, as you document to show how it reduces violence? Not at not at present, but one of the kind of next steps that we might want to take is getting into more of those um, social impact 
measurements. Um, it's just that unfortunately there's been so little invested in just the basics of our existence um, that we felt it was important to just start with the study that is just documenting the basics of Black literary organizations um, being here and how we've managed to you know keep it going. But um, there are so many uh, subjects that really should have further inquiry and I mean, we know the importance of the arts and and how that helps you to regulate your emotions. I mean, I think we see it even in the mass injustice system, just the importance of having programs like and what that impact can be on violence. So I, it, it's definitely something that I hope will be done and will be demonstrated. Keep saying we've talked about defunding the police and yet we've defunded education so easily. And that is contributing to what we see in the streets. Kids need something to do. They need somewhere to go. They need something to believe in. It's so, it's just common sense. I feel like Republicans like find a common ground on something with them where they get it too, where they go, oh, I guess if we do fund education and find this importance, maybe we won't have to keep running. I think I think it's about control to white, them. Though. I think it's about control to them. I think they understand that it's easier to control uneducated people. Has it worked out? Yeah. So far. It's, it's yeah. been working out for <laughs> yeah. them. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why they keep doing it. <laughs> I, I feel like it hasn't worked out, though. I feel like right now we have so many random acts of violence mm. in areas where they don't expect it and that they're confused by it. And we need to point that out, that this is happening because of what you've done to your education mm -hmm. system. I mean, gun violence, yeah. mental illness. They keep Republicans keep keep hammering mental illness i think we can meet them on that and go yeah you're right but guess what leads to mental illness lack of education yeah. lack of resources mm -hmm. so you know we got to meet them somewhere i That's hate true. it but you mean the mass shootings because like in big cities yeah. crime is actually down even though they're yes. gutting mental health thing. i mean let's see how long that lasts because they are gutting resources here as well but Violence is down in big cities as much as the Republicans love to scream Chicago and all that stuff. That's not true. All that's fake. But yeah, the mass shootings, absolutely education and funding could help. I mean, the real thing is let's get rid of the NRA and let's ban some assault rifles. But if we can't if we can't get that done, at least we can fund some programs. I don't know. Politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you live in Harlem, Lisa, so I don't know if you've been involved. I've somewhat involved in the what like the pandemic brought out. I would wouldn't say the worst in me, the best in me, actually, <laughs> where I've gotten involved in like community, I know community <laughs> boards. And uh, we got some issues in mm -hmm. Harlem that is very problematic mm -hmm. with our community board. Mm -hmm. And our they they pushed out a young senator, our, our councilwoman Kristen Jordan, who I absolutely loved. Um, and there was such a man. There was such a, um, and she's not even running again. She's like she's like leaving. And she was the first one to really communicate and be transparent with a lot of people in this community. And I I and she stopped the building of a um, 
a major building on 145th Street that was supposed to go up mm -hmm. that was not affordable housing that claimed to be affordable housing. Mm -hmm. She was the presence of that, and they got her. They got her. I mean, politics. Woo! Oh. Lord, have mercy. God help us. So this is why I brought this up, because we do have this article about Bloomberg philanthropies. I can't say philanthrope. Asphalt Art Initiative Expand Grant opportunity to cities in Canada, Mexico, and the United States, which could be a great example, you know, for, for your organization. Asphalt Art Initiative Grant has been renewed and expanded for its fourth round, which grants up to cities, 20 cities, 25,000 grants to help improve street safety, activate public spaces, and engage community residents. Art Initiative responds to the growing number of cities around the world embracing art as an effective and low-cost strategy to improve street safety through interventions on crosswalks, intersections, plaza, and other transportation infrastructure. So, which is very cool. And they have proved that this works. This study results showed a 50% drop in the rate of crashes involving pedestrians or cyclists and a 27% increase in the rate of drivers yielding to pedestrians with the right of way. Um, this is amazing because we know we need this in New York. I mean, I don't know. I rode a bike. I was riding the bike during the pandemic all over the place. Then the world opened up and then I see people not, I'm like, it's not just the cars, it's all the cyclists. I'm like, you're going the wrong way. But it's like, when you have these studies that show like the drops, like in Kansas City, Missouri, the artistic redesign of an intersection known for dangerously speeding drivers saw average traffic speeds drop by 45%. What liter literature can do, what arts, because there's such an attack on the arts right now. Yeah, I see this. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. Pretty much. Is there anything else that we missed that you would like to tell our, our listeners? I, we've covered a lot today. This has been a really, you know, a really engaging conversation. Just want to, you know, highlight Juneteenth is coming up. It's, uh, it's this moment in time that now the nation is going to, you know, kind of honor on a national level. And I just think, you know, it's really easy to kind of move in the direction of let's get the cupcakes, let's let's get the things and the burials, let's you know have the picnics. But I really hope that it can be a time of reflection and remembrance and just all that energy that it seemed like we were you know coming up with a few years ago, um, in the height of the pandemic. I I would really love to see Juneteenth be that reminder of supporting the Black community supporting our first independence day and of course representing a black organization um supporting black literature reading black books supporting black writers supporting independent booksellers um supporting the written words so that we can continue to have conversations like this and be informed and you know have a space for for everyone in this society properly supported with equal resources Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I, I, I'm going to submit my poem. <laughs> yes. I was just going to say, how do we get involved in these retreats? <laughs> well, you gotta, you gotta go to the, yeah. the community. You gotta be involved. You gotta show you really, you are really about it. You can't just be showing up. <laughs> That's true. 
You know how people are like, I want to go. <laughs> well, well, have you shown that you want to do the work? Have you written a poem lately? Have you have you gotten involved in your community with your poetry? Show it. Do it. Get involved. This is wonderful to have you here today. I thank you so, so much. I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Tina, we lost um, you know, Tina Turner, which I know like um, you know, when we think about artists and poetry and music and everything, she is one of those that it's just like when she, when I heard that, it, I didn't know what to do with that. Like that one hurt my soul. How did it affect you, Lisa? You know, we actually had a reading here at Kaveh Kanem that same evening. And so we played her music before the poetry reading started because everyone was just in a state of reflection, mourning, there was just a need for a silent, just gathering and with her. Um, yeah, I, I, Tina Turner is really, she's really impactful to me because I think as a woman, a black woman who went through all that she went through, she lived a very full life, but that sort of resurgence recharge that she showed in the latter chapter of her life, it just really underscores the value of age um, and women, which I think society tends to say is devaluing. She was a lived example of like, no, that's not the case. Like we do, we, we get better as we age, we have value, we can contribute. And she just broke so many barriers. That was, she lived a very full life though. So yes, yes. perfectly said, perfectly said. Noya, did you listen to Tina Turner or are you too young for her? No, I'm not too young. Although my first, my introdu my introduction to her was uh, the movie where she was... Um, the Thunderdome? Yeah, Thunderdome. <laughs> so, <laughs> and we don't need another hero. I've actually dressed like her for a thing that I did that was Mad Max themed. It was like a burlesque show where I was like the comedian and I dressed like Tina Turner. And there was a burlesque performer that was also dressed like Tina Turner and he was very mad. He's very upset. <laughs> he was like, "You, no one told me there was going to be another Tina." But oh, that's <laughs> hilarious! But I, you know, I was just happy that she had made it to a to old age, as you were saying, because you know we've been losing lots of young people lately, and it's refreshing to see someone who survived abuse like that make it, and you know, and reinvent, reinvent, oh. and you know, be. At first, she was tied to that man, and then she ma she made it very clear that she didn't need him, and that she was the star, you know. And that's great. Yeah, she has an amazing story of, especially for Black women, because I think you know, I I you know how I did that joke about like um, Black girl magic. That's our we age well. That's our because I I did a whole bit about what you yeah. were saying earlier about magic. Like I never really like, I felt weird saying I didn't like Black girl magic because I felt like. Black girl magic puts too much pressure on me to be that um, magical thing when I'm still struggling. And I like to know, I like you to know my struggle really, and to know that I haven't yet achieved this magic. Um, and, but I said, you know, but I have aged well. So if that is, that's my black girl magic, hey. And I always felt like, you know, that's our justice as black women is that we age well because by the time we make it, you know, sometimes the injustice is that it takes us so long. So we might as well look good when we get there, you <laughs> yes, know? Yes. Um, and Tina Turner definitely proved that, showed it. And um, 
I'm going to miss having someone like that around. You know, we've lost so many amazing elders in the black community that really like paved the way, you know, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Tina Turner. So it's a very, it's a very important time. And thank you for doing what you're doing to to also be a leader in this. Um, So Noye, where can our listeners find you? Uh, you can find me at noyecomedy.com. Uh, upcoming shows that I have to plug are um, I'm hosting the Dyke March Raffle at Nine Bob Note on June 15th. And then also I'm doing the Lincoln Center for NY Laughs on June 28th. Nice. I don't know. I'm excited. Um, I'm just one of the little ones. I'm not one of the headliners like you are, but <laughs> it'll be fun. You guys should come. And my website is N-O-N-Y-E comedy.com, Noye comedy.com. And with friends like us, you can uh, have your own little poetry jam right here. <laughs> ah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa. Okay, cool. Um, so you can learn about Kaveh Kanem over at kavehkanempoets.org. Um, the big thing that we have coming up is Juneteenth and July 4th. We're coming together with four other Black literary organizations um, as part of Getting Word to support us, to learn about all the organizations, about this important time. Uh, go to gettingword.org and with friends like us we can create a sustainable future for the cultivation of black writers yes <laughs> oh yes <laughs> marina franklin here just go to my website marinafranklin.com to find out in june i am headlining for the jersey comedy festival go to my website though you will see exact dates and tickets and with friends like us we don't need another hero because we have friends like us. Oh man, that felt good. That felt that was strong. That was yes. so strong. Yeah. Yes. Check, Check us, us out. out.